I'm absolutely delighted to be here. This sounds like a very exciting event. I'm sorry I wasn't here during the morning, but I'm, I'm here now um, and up for discussion. I'm going to focus on women in employment, women in the workplace, because that's my comfort zone, my area of expertise, and as much as I have expertise. Uh, but that's not to say that women and work is a sort of bubble issue, and that, women, that when women get to work, all the rest of their lives kind of fall away and make no difference. Because clearly, for women to be able to work, there are a whole range of other issues that one has to look at, uh, not least of which is availability of childcare, and increasingly these days, actually, help with caring for dependent relatives at other stages in their lives. You'll find there's a sharp increase in the number of particularly uh, middle-aged older women who have become dependent for an elderly relative or a disabled relative or close friend. Um, and they're trying to do that and go to work at the same time. So those issues, of course, are terribly important. Uh, and also, there are a whole range of issues. The pipeline into work through education and training is significant. Women arrive at work with a of qualifications or not. Um, and so all those issues are related. But I'm going to focus particularly on what's going on in the workplace and come up with some ideas um, that certainly at the TUC we would think were worthy of consideration for an updated new um, 2015 Working Women's Charter. Now, this government, the Condems, who are nearly at the end of their awful government, um, sorry if anyone's a supporter of theirs, but I'm not going to mince my words, they're confident that they've done absolutely everything that needs to be done as for a government uh, in terms of supporting women in the labour market. And here's what they said to CEDAW, um, the International Campaign to End Discrimination Against Women, uh, in, in June 2011, but I think it's, it's still pretty relevant, and I think it's still what they think. This was their official contribution to CEDAW report on, on um, uh, discrimination against women as far as the UK goes. They said, women who wish to work make a critical contribution to the economy, both in their role as, as workers and as primary carers. The UK government has introduced reforms to remove barriers to work. There has been strong growth in the UK in the level of female participation in the labour market over the past few decades, where women now make up 46% of the workforce, up from 37% in 1971. Well, that's all very well, isn't it? And it's a statement of facts at that point in time. And, of course, women now make up even more of the labour market. I think they're almost 50% of the labour market now are women. However, that's not where it ends, of course. I'm going to talk about some findings that we came up with in the TUC, which shows how very gender-biased the impact of the so-called reforms that the government I've just quoted them on has been, including specifically uh, on older women, where the TUC's done a great deal of work, if you're interested, up on our website under the heading Age Immaterial, is a, a very comprehensive report on the situation of older women at work. I won't dwell on that too much today, but it's very significant, because that's a growing um, cohort of women at work now, and there are some specific issues surrounding women who work on through middle age and into to their older years. Uh, that's very important. The women's employment rate has indeed been growing between 2000 and 2008. It did then start to fall um, and was nearly the same in 2012 as it had been in 2000. So it's been a slightly patchy uh, increase. But the latest figures are showing that women's employment has grown again. It is growing again. But there's a very large qualification needed here. 
That is that a large number of women at work are now classed as self-employed. Now, that is a sleight of hand, because actually they're not really self-employed. And to run away with the illusion that these are happy women who've got their own career sorted out and an exciting uh, self-employed job to go to, um, I'm afraid is sheer fantasy, because the vast majority of this new uh, cohort of self-employed women are bogus self-employed. Uh, what happens is the employer, instead of giving them an employment of contract, which gives them the basic protections that you get when you have a contract, contract of employment that tells them that they're not an employee, that they're self-employed, they have to take care of their own tax and insurance arrangements, which many neglect to do for some pretty understandable reasons but that the employer um, owes them no responsibility, no real duty of care beyond the absolute minimum on health and safety and so on that's just about still provided for anybody working, regardless of their contractual situation. But it means there are now a lot of women in very low-paid, extremely insecure jobs. Many of them, uh, of course, are working on zero-hours contracts, which is a huge issue the TUC is doing a lot of work on. Those are those contracts where you're told that you're contracted to the employer, so you have to work for them, but they're not going to tell you what work you're going to be doing um, and when you're going to be doing it. And you can imagine that if you've got caring responsibilities, although the employers will tell you this is all marvellous and very flexible, it's one-way flexibility. It's very flexible for them. It's not much good being told that you're flexibly employed if you're trying to arrange your work, uh, your childcare, and all your other responsibilities and also you need to know what your income is going to be. You need to know that you're going to be able to pay the rent. Increasingly, especially if you're bogus self-employed, you're going to need to know that you can afford insurance to cover periods of sickness, maternity and all the rest of it. So it's no dream for the many women who are now employed um, in that sort of situation. Uh, and things like contributory, uh, things like pensions, again, if you don't make your own arrangements and the employer isn't paying anything because they're not employing you on paper, then you're going to be in real trouble later on in life. So all these things weigh down on women now while they're at work. Um, and for a lot of women, uh, work is very, very difficult and very uncertain. It's inevitable that I was going to talk about the gender pay gap. The gender pay gap in the private sector is double that in the public sector, and my firm belief is that's because you still have strong trade unionism in the public sector, and collective agreements are negotiated that do, um, not entirely, but do get you towards a position where gender, the gender pay gap is much smaller and there's progress being made towards eliminating it. It's not easy, um, and trade unions have to work very hard in a rather difficult area of law to secure this, but the situation is that it's much, much, much less is much bigger uh, in the private sector where there's an awful lot of employers who don't do uh, gender auditing who aren't transparent about what they're paying people um, and as women tend to be told to keep their mouths shut um, about what they're being paid particularly if they're in precarious areas of the of the labor market it's actually very difficult to use any of the equal pay laws um, and they just don't work effectively for women in that situation so there's a huge problem I always say this 35 years after the uh, Equal Pay Act got onto the statute book, we've still got around a 16% gender pay gap for full-time uh, workers, full-time women. Uh, and I, I can't think of very many other pieces of law, fundamental statutes, that would have failed so lamentably and been left almost untouched. You know, does it matter? No, not really. It's there on paper. We've done what we're supposed to do. They, there's nothing. I have to say, successive governments have not really got a grip on this and have not done very much at all about it. 
There's a whole range of issues relating to benefits, which I'm not going to go into because I'm not a benefits person. You may have been discussing that this morning. But it's just worth noting, for example, there's been a 55.7% increase in lone parents claiming job seekers' allowance. Um, now, those are mainly women. Uh, and the whole issue of poverty in work, which is a big issue um, and one that we're pushing very hard in the trade union movement, again, particularly affects women. But it's, I, I think it's a shocking indictment of our system today that pay is so low, particularly for women, that the state is having to top people's wages up. And whatever they tell you in the Daily Mail, the vast majority of benefits in this country go to support people on low pay who are in work. And most of the rest go on things like state pensions. So it's an absolute fallacy to say that uh, social security benefits are vastly paid out to migrant workers and people who aren't employed. Um, that's just something worth remembering. But it has a particular impact, again, on women at work, because they're always having to make this judgment. And if you're on a zero-hours contract and you don't know what your hours are, this becomes much more difficult. But you're always having to make this judgment um, about will you get support from the social security system this week or not? How many hours are you going to get next week? It's an absolute nightmare, as I said before. But let's move from being depressed and looking at all the problems that are out there in the workplace. Um, and I should just add one other thing, which is agency workers. Um, I was just chatting to Fiona earlier about the growing number of people who work in this college uh, who are actually employed through agencies. Now, there's nothing specifically wrong with agencies if they're good agencies and they pay people properly. The trouble is a lot of them don't. They make their profits from effectively hiring labour out to other organisations um, and making money out of it. So the poor old worker uh, gets the money skimmed off what they would get, in effect, to keep the agency going uh, and to allow the institution to make savings that it wouldn't make if it directly employed people. And this is not something that's just a feature. It would be appalling if it was just a feature uh, in areas like cleaning and all those other jobs that primarily employ women. Uh, but it's actually all over the labour market. Now, it's rife in education. There's a lot of shops and um, outlets, retail outlets, that use uh, these agency work arrangements increasingly. Uh, it's very hard to find organisations. A health service is absolutely stuffed now with agency nurses, agency podiatrists, would you believe? Agency everything. And it is purely, really, to benefit the employer um, and not really to do very much for the agency worker at the wrong end of that sort of um, contractual arrangement. So that's another big issue. It's this, I'm trying to paint to you a picture of precarious work and the most precarious always, if you look at the statistics, are the women, not just actually in the low-paid sectors, although that's a particular feature, but women actually right through. Uh, if you look at professions like the law, again, you'll find that the majority of women work as solicitors. The vast amounts of high-paid lawyers are barristers uh, who work in commercial firms and can make a lot of money. So even in uh, professional jobs, where women now are graduating in those disciplines and coming out into those jobs, they're still in the parts of those jobs that are the less well-paid parts, usually because they need to be able to work part-time or take time off when they have babies. Uh, and we're still appalling in the UK about how we treat pregnant women. They're discriminated against while they're at work, while they're pregnant. Uh, they're really badly treated when they come back often. But the biggest thing that's almost universal as a feature is falling off the career progression ladder. Whatever sort of job you're doing, you, you have to catch up, and women tend not to catch up. So they fall behind, particularly at that kind of stage in your early 30s to when you're 40, when you're having your children, and you play catch up, but you never get there again. And that's something that really, really, really has to be addressed. So just a few quick points on the charter before I shut up and listen to you. Uh, and my colleague here who's going to speak as well. 
What the TUC is arguing is that equal pay laws should be made much more effective by placing a statutory, that's a legal duty on employers, to carry out regular, i.e. once a year, audits of their pay systems. That's the entire grading system. That's how they actually structure their pay, not just a quick snapshot of who's paid what at one moment in time, and then are obliged to take some action to show that they're narrowing any gender pay gaps that can't be justified. And I would actually argue the same thing on race as well, because there's also an BMA, BAME, black and minority <laughs> ethnic pay gap, which needs to be addressed. Um, and so, you know, you shouldn't go down these things on single channels. If you're going to introduce that sort of law, I think you can make it broader uh, than simply gender. In terms of carers, we're calling for five to ten days, and we could discuss which if you agree with this, of paid carers' leave a year. So that's an absolute entitlement. That's gender neutral, because we accept that we need to do more to encourage men to spend more time doing their share, and a lot of them want to do that, but their share of child rearing and caring. We also feel, feel there should be probably at this stage an unpaid leave entitlement for grandparents similar to the existing parental leave arrangements. There's a growing number particularly of grandmothers who are looking after um, their grandchildren so that their offspring can continue to work and that's a very important issue. We've called for a period of statutory adjustment leave, we're calling it. Um, it, it. I think some companies have bereavement leave when a close relative has died. But we would want this to be statutory for any sudden changes to caring responsibilities or a crisis with your child or your dependent relative. Sorry, I'm galloping through this a bit, but we want all employers to have to advertise all their jobs on a flexible basis, and we would want to see public sector employers take the lead on that. The government still has leverage there, and that would be a very good example to private sector employers of how and where this would work. I've talked about zero-hours contracts. We've got a whole range of specific legislative measures we'd like to see taken to put an end to that form of exploitation, absolutely and for all. But we do accept that there are some people who work on freelance contracts, so it wouldn't be an absolute blanket ban, but it would be a specific prohibition of particular ways of using zero-hours contracts where they are utterly exploitative. Um, we want to see an extension of collective bargaining for trade unions. We want to see far more encouragement given by ACAS um, and by a government to ways of dealing with pay, dealing with working conditions through workforce agreements and workforce bodies. And those aren't really going to be genuine unless they're conducted with independent trade unions. What's wrong with promoting independent trade unionism as a means of protecting those who are the most vulnerable at work? If you look at the situation in the labour market at the moment, the very worst examples of exploitation in all those areas where there's no trade union penetration. In unionised companies, there's far less litigation, wage levels are higher, safety records are better. Why can't a government, particularly a Labour government, come in and say, we will promote collective bargaining? Not going to force people to join trade unions, but we'll try and ensure that the conditions are there that encourage the growth of good, strong trade unionism. The, my last point, it really is my last point, is on older women. I said I'd talk about that. There are particular issues that older women face increasingly, um, and I know this through personal experience, uh, as they carry on working, perhaps beyond the time that they might have expected to go on working, often because they, they can't afford to retire. Um, there are particular issues about women who are working when they're menopausal. Employers seem to completely misunderstand that these are health issues and that they need to understand that women may need a fan in their office. You know, they may need 
more access to a toilet. There's all sorts of practical things uh, that employers seem to be very un unable to, to imagine or cope with or get embarrassed about. You need to make sure sickness absence procedures take account of things like the menopause. And you need to look at what women are doing in terms of their, their home lives, because often, as I said earlier, at this stage in a woman's life, she'll be acquiring responsibilities for an elderly parent and may still have her own children at home. So she's trying to go on working, care for her mother, and also care for a growing teenage child. It's a huge burden of responsibility. Um, so that's probably my final point. We need to do a lot more for older women at work. Um, as well, of course, and I'm very conscious that the trade union movement um, isn't quite where it should be yet on young workers. I'm afraid the average age of a trade unionist is 48 um, and going up, which is not a comfortable place to be at all. So under my new wonderful woman general secretary, Frances O'Grady, we're making a huge pitch to get unions all the support they need to encourage younger workers to join on whatever basis we can get them in. Let's not be old-fashioned about that. Unions have to adapt and accommodate a very different type of worker doing a very different type of job than some unions have been used to. Um, it's, we, we've designated this month Young Workers Month, and we're intending to do much, much, much more to get unions into a position where they're attractive <laughs> to younger workers and they're recruiting them, particularly uh, younger women, because there are more younger women coming through now um, into uh, a lot of these, as I said, these precarious jobs than there are men. So I think that's quite enough for me, but I hope it's given you some ideas and is sort of hitting the, the spot in terms of what you've been discussing this morning. And I'm very much looking forward to joining in with the discussions um, later on. So thank you.